Hello, and welcome back to the HSPAN podcast, your go-to podcast for longevity policy discussion. I'm your host, Dylan Livingston. Today, we are joined by Andrew Steele. Andrew is a physicist turned biologist who made the switch after determining that aging was the single most important scientific challenge of our time, in quotes. In this episode, I wanted to find out how Andrew first got involved with the longevity movement, as well as his thoughts on the current state of longevity research, government interaction, and the future of this field. So join us as we discuss the role policymaking plays in the advancement of aging biology. Without further ado, here's Andrew Steele. Well, first, Andrew, I want to thank you for joining us for this iteration of the H-SPAN podcast. Thank you very uh, much for having me. Yeah, I really appreciate your time and your voice and your efforts in this aging problem that we're all you know, trying to solve. So for our audience, which is mostly U.S.-based, we are a U.S.-based political advocacy organization, A4LI. Our audience may or may not be familiar with you, but being that you are a star in the UK, I want you to introduce yourself. So can you take a second to just tell our listeners who you are, what you're up to, a little of course, bit, yeah. bit of background? So I guess, hi, I'm Andrew Steele. I am a physicist turned biologist. So what happened was back at the end of my physics PhD in about 2011 or so, I decided that aging was the single biggest humanitarian scientific challenge of our time because it's responsible for so, so many deaths, as you know, the A4LI has eloquently explained in, in lots of its publications. And I decided that I wanted to switch to biology to sort of understand if this was as promising an area as it sounded. And what I found was that after that period of time working in biology, I worked as what's called a computational biologist for about five years. I found that, you know, the public doesn't know that much about aging. Often policymakers don't know a huge amount about aging because they've got loads and loads of other things on, you know, they're busy policymaking lives. They're busy just, you know, everyday lives. But I also found that scientists don't necessarily know a great deal about aging because often, you know, your standard biology or biochemistry or whatever it might be, or even your medical undergraduate degree there's often not a single lecture on aging biology. And so I just decided what we really needed was to spread the word about this incredible field and the huge potential that it has. So I ended up switching from science into a more sort of communications role. And I became an author. I've written a book called Ageless, The New Science of Getting Older Without Getting Old. So if you want an introduction to the biology of aging, I've tried to give the sort of most comprehensive overview of the science in an accessible way as I could in that. And at the moment, I'm working on my next book. I'm Try and do a bit of TV with Ageless to try and spread the word as widely as possible, making a few YouTube videos about longevity and a, a bunch of other science topics that I care about. So yeah, it's a bit difficult to define exactly what I do, but trying to sort of advocate for aging is a huge, huge part of it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and you know, you and I both are advocates, but you are really not, not knowledgeable. You're an expert in the science. And so, you know, that's why I appreciate what you do so much, because you really are a credible voice. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not, but... I'm, you know, a politico through and through and right. And I think about the political ramifications of, you know, this aging biotech endeavor and the whole longevity crusade, right? And, you know, I'm trying to think about it from a policy perspective. But, you know, you 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 really can't, you know, are, are one of the great communicators this field has. And so, you know, I want to just say that right now. I appreciate what you do. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure you do you miss academia at all or, or, you know, the lifestyle of a scientist researcher? Like, do you miss that at all? Or are you happy in this new communication? Before? I'm actually very happy doing this. And I think one of the it depends how you approach the communication stuff sort of behind all of the work that I do is 
you know, I hope I bring some of that academic rigor to, you know, all, all of the sort of books and the videos and whatever it is that I produce. And that's because, you know, there's, there are hundreds of references in the back of Asia, so all, you know, the scientific papers that I've read during the course of writing the book. I also do a lot of my own sort of data and calculations because often there are sort of gaps in the literature for things that I want to talk about. So I think, you know, I can still sort of scratch that methodological itch and, uh, you know, really get my sort of hands dirty doing something that's a little bit scientific. But there's also just this huge privilege that comes with communicating science. You know, when you're writing a book, I was able to write to some of the absolute top experts in, you know, this huge range of different parts of the aging field and just get us, you know, one-to-one sit down with them, which is absolutely incredible. And I think it's given me, you know, an understanding of aging biology that would have taken me decades working in the field. But because I was able to sit down with all these experts, read all of these papers across so much more of a diverse range than you get in the yard down in the trenches in science working you know sort of chipping away at your one highly specific problem yeah i I really really loved you know talking about science and the sort of access and the the broad overview that it gives me right absolutely you know it's 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 interesting the scientists in the longevity industry i don't know i i can't speak in any other field really but they are are all very open and honest about you know what they're trying to do you know the, the the feasibility of it and you know the timeline, all these kind of, you know, things that, I mean, I don't know if you saw the, the recent BBC, Brian Johnson piece, but yeah, you know, her big takeaway was, I'm forgetting her name, I think Lara Lewington, um, her big takeaway was that, you know, the longevity industry was a bunch of rational thinkers trying to help people, you know, live in better health, you know, for longer, not this kind of, you know, moonshot, live forever type of thing that people kind of get the impression of for, for billionaires or whatever we want to you know, kind of go into there. But so, so my point in all that is, yeah, you know, I, I, I also feel a very similar way with, you know, A4LI being you know, the political advocacy organization. It is, you know, everybody has been so, you know, kind of willing to sit down and ex- not only explain the science, but also get involved politically and on my end. So yeah, no, it's, 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 a, it's a small but growing and mighty field. And so you're at the center of, of, of it all, Andrew. So I'm, I'm glad that we're working together on this, though, because, you know, your, your voice is needed on this political advocacy side, right? And it's going to be more needed as we continue to ramp up efforts. Yeah, I mean, thank you very much. And also, it's just a huge privilege to be in this position because I've, I have been able to speak to all these scientists. I have been able to build up this knowledge base. And also, you know, I, I wrote the book partly as a piece of policy advocacy. Obviously, that isn't the, the primary function. I want to sort of get the word out there to as many people as possible, from scientists to, you know, just people on the street. But actually, the crucial thing that this field really needs is sort of the recognition from the people in government, from people who are, you know, making science policy funding this stuff and making sure that it can achieve the huge huge potential that it has because it's a really it's a really difficult balancing act communicating this stuff there's some amazing exciting developments happening there's there's you know new papers coming out every day every week there's this sort of you know almost fire hose of new research about aging biology but at the same time as that you know communicating that excitement that vibrancy in the field we have to communicate that it's just not enough you know if we're going to really achieve the potential that this field has the funding is just you know honestly a bit paltry at the moment and yeah. if we really gave it the sort of funding that it deserved the funding that we could provide it then you know it could change all of our lives for the better absolutely absolutely it, it sounds it sounds like you would be great sitting in on a on an A4LI meeting with one of these political offices. You definitely, uh, you know, yeah, that, that's ba- that you, that's basically what we say, you know, all the time, right? Yeah. And I'm sure you can kind of get into the, to the statistics more, but, you know, 70% of, you know, deaths are you know, daily are driven by aging or age-related diseases or some sort of age-related ailment, right? And, you know, we only put in, in the NIH, you know, we only put less than 1% of our budget towards this field of research. So, you know, the, the, it's a complete mismatch and, you know, we'll kind of, let's go, let's, let's go into that a little bit. 
So, so the first thing I kind of wanted to discuss with you is your, your, your thoughts on where longevity is now, because there's a lot of, you know, I, I see people being overhyped about the field to certain extent. And then I see people being underhyped about the field, people thinking that, you know, we're not actually that close, but then also people thinking we're, you know, about to be immortal forever. So mm-hmm. can you, as someone who talks to so many people, right, has this kind of ear to the so many doors in the longevity field, knows all the top scientists and researchers and what have you, could you give your assessment on, you know, where we are on the science, specifically what science is, you know, looking the most promising these days to you as someone who is so much an expert in this field? And, you know, can you just kind of give our audience kind of, you know, a sensible overview of what's going on in the field right now and what you're excited about? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the field is in a place where, where, you know, it's been sort of building up to this position for the last few decades. And if you roll back to the 1990s, which I think is where the excitement about all this really started, for a very long time before the 90s, people thought aging was just this impossibly complicated process. It's just a sort of way in which our bodies decay in, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of different ways. And this just isn't something that can be you know, sensibly studied in the lab. This isn't something that we can intervene in particularly. But what happened in the 1990s was that we discovered that there are single genetic changes, in fact, sometimes a single letter of DNA that can be changed inside. And actually what they were looking at at the time were these these things called nematode worms, these tiny sort of few millimeter long worms that crawl around on these Petri dishes. And they found by making a single letter change to that worm's DNA, they can actually double its lifespan. And suddenly that's far more exciting. So that the first reason is obviously, you know, doubling lifespan, that's going to grab some headlines. But more importantly, from a scientific point of view, that meant that you could make these sort of genetic changes, something you can do in the lab, not some impossibly complicated cocktail of drugs or interventions. We can actually start to, you know, do relatively simple genetic changes. And then we could see what happens. And we could find out, you know, what's different in this worm that's aging twice as slowly, apparently, as one of its compatriots that hasn't got this genetic mutation. And that really opened up the field. Firstly, I think it brought a sort of influx of excitement and science, but also opened it up to this laboratory exploration. And now, you know, a few decades later, we're at the point where we've got a fairly good handle. You know, you're not going to get complete agreement among scientists, but I think that's probably true in any scientific field. But we think there is this collection of changes sort of dubbed the hallmarks of the aging process. And I've got 10 of these in my book. There were nine in the original paper that introduced the idea. There are there are now 12 because I actually released a paper in the last few months, adding a couple of extra ones. There was a, a, a collection of seven thought of in the early 2000s. So, you know, people do differ, disagree about the exact number in the exact categorization. But there's a huge amount of overlap in these different categorization systems. So we've got some idea of things that change with age and seem to accelerate the aging process if they're sped up and decelerate the aging process if they're slowed down. Now that might sound super abstract, so let's try and make that a little bit more concrete. My favorite example of this is something that's actually quite hot at the moment, which is something called the accumulation of senescent cells. Now, senescent is just the biological term for old, basically. It's just the technical term. And what we find is that these particular type of cells, they don't divide, which means they're no longer sort of fulfilling their function in the body. And these were first observed in addition to lab, but we then realized that these cells actually accumulate in all of our bodies as we get older and not just our bodies, but the bodies of other animals as well, things like mice. And so these things, as they accumulate, they seem to accelerate not just one disease as part of the aging process, but perhaps even all of the diseases of the aging process, certainly a large number. You know, so diseases from cancer to heart disease to dementia, a lot of these things are connected with this phenomenon of cellular senescence. So that's sort of step one of, you know, doing something about aging biology is identifying these changes. So seeing something that might accumulate with age, it might decrease with age, it just changes in a certain specific way 
as we get older. But then the next step is to identify an intervention, you know, a drug or another kind of treatment that can do something about this change. And so back in sort of 2011 or so, scientists developed this uh, genetic way of removing senescent cells. And then a few years later, they developed a drug which they could use. In fact, it was a combination of drugs. They found that desatinib, which is a chemo drug, and quercetin, which is this flavanol that's often found in various kinds of fruit and veg, when combined, could be given to mice and it would kill the senescent cells in these mice, but leave the rest of the cells of their body intact. And what was really exciting about this was that basically it made the mice biologically younger. So it made them live a bit longer, which I guess is a sort of prerequisite for doing something about aging. But it wasn't just that they were dragging out that period of frailty at the end of life. The mice were living healthier. They got less cancer. They got less heart disease. They got fewer cataracts clouding their eyes. They were able to run further and faster on the tiny mouse-sized treadmills that are using these experiments, which is sort of a you know mouse way of experimenting with the delaying of frailty, which is obviously something that affects humans a huge amount as we get older. It seemed to reduce some of the cognitive decline associated with mouse aging. And honestly, you know, if you haven't seen pictures of the mice that have had these senolytic treatments as they're called you should go and you know have a look on the internet for them right now because even to a completely non-expert eye you know when i was a biologist i was a computational person i was mainly sat you know tapping away at my keyboard programming all day i never worked with mice in the lab but even to my very non-expert eye it's obvious which mouse has had the drugs they've got thicker fur they've got less gray fur they've got plumper skin they're not so fat looking they're you know just they just look healthier it's absolutely obvious which mouse is which and what this suggests is that these senescent cells they accumulate in our bodies and they aren't just driving one part of aging they aren't just driving one disease they're driving many of the diseases maybe all of them they're driving the cosmetic changes the you know the the skin the the fur that kind of stuff the cognitive changes all of these different things linked together by an understanding of the aging biology and we're now at a point where there are 20 or 30 companies trying to turn these ideas from something that works in mice to something that works in people. And so this really shows you how you can go from understanding a hallmark, a change associated with aging, and turn it into, you know, hopefully a commercializable medicine that we can be taking to slow down our own aging at some point in the future. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's the one public company that comes to mind, I think that just hit my inbox today was Unity Biotech. Mm. I think somewhere in phase two trials now. So yeah, it's exciting times for sure on the analytics front. Can you kind of touch on some of those other hallmarks of aging for our audience? And you don't need to go into, you know, you can give as much or as little explanation as you want, but, you know, I, 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 I think it would be useful for everybody to kind of get an idea of what the other ones at least entail or, you know, are, are, are talking about within the cell, right? Because these are all, you know, changes that happen within your cells. So, you know, maybe somebody can uh, think back to, you know, some of our audience can think back to their ninth grade biology class and, you know, uh, remember some of the pieces of the cell and, you know, hopefully this explanation can be useful. But Andrew, can you kind of touch on those other hallmarks that, 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 that happen as we age? Yeah, sure. So the senescent cells probably fall somewhere in the middle of the hallmarks. The way I lay them out in the book is sort of going from smallest and most fundamental to the biggest and sort of most all-encompassing. So starting at the very smallest and most fundamental level, you'll remember from your high school biology that in the middle of every cell, there's this thing called the nucleus. And inside the cellular nucleus, there's the instruction manual that allows life to proceed, basically. And this instruction manual is written in the code of DNA. And what happens to that DNA as we get older is it accumulates damage and it accumulates mutations. And that damage, those damage and mutations are caused by a variety of different things. Some of it is things like ultraviolet lights. If you 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 go out on a sunny day and you're not wearing sunscreen, the UV light can damage the DNA in your skin cells. Some of it's caused by toxins or things in our diet and that kind of stuff. But an awful lot of it actually is caused just by the the rough and tumble of being inside a cell, existing, living, because there are all kinds of chemicals that are buzzing around, allowing our metabolism to work, which can damage the DNA and cause these mutations, which are changes 
to the letters of the DNA, changes to that genetic code. And you can imagine if there are mistakes, if there are typos in the instruction manual for life, then problems can ensue. And one of the most obvious one of those problems is cancer. We know that if you give the cell the wrong combination of mutations, it can learn to divide uncontrollably. And that uncontrollable division can ultimately go on to cause a tumor, which can obviously you know, has all the consequences that we know about cancer. It can go on to kill you. So that's at the very, very smallest level, changes to our DNA. So or zooming out a bit further, you can think about changes to telomeres. That's something people have often heard of. These are the protective caps at the end of our DNA that get shorter as we go through our lives. And we see that people with shorter telomeres tend to have worse health outcomes as they get older. So that's something we could think about you know, trying to intervene in. Another the component inside the cell that people might have heard of is the mitochondrion, often known as the powerhouse of the cell. That's the sort of cliche to the point where it's even cliche to point out that it's a cliche, frankly, but it's something that you might have heard in your high school biology textbook. And we know that these change in their behavior, they can actually acquire mutations of their own as we go through our lives. Then all of these sort of small scale problems going on inside the cell can cause cells to become senescent. So we've already touched a bit upon that. And then zooming out even further, some of the hallmarks are actually for sort of systems in the body. And the, the final hallmark that I talk about in the book is the aging of the immune system. And this can be caused by a variety of different sort of hallmarks that precede it almost. So if you imagine some of the immune cells becoming senescent, they stop fulfilling their immune function. And the obvious consequence of this is that we get much worse at fighting infections as we get older. So if you think about, you know, back to the COVID-19 pandemic not so long ago, we noticed that older people were much, much more likely, still are much, much more likely, even after vaccination, to get serious consequences, to go to hospital, to die of coronavirus than a younger person. And that's partly because of the aging of our immune systems. But it also has a much wider sort of impact on our biology. We know that the immune system is partly responsible for the sort of processes behind heart disease, cardiovascular disease, strokes, these sorts of things. And we also know that the reduced surveillance by the immune system isn't just bad at spotting or doesn't just worsen at spotting external threats like COVID, but also gets worse at spotting the internal threats, so things like cancer. And so, you know, if, if a cell does accumulate that wrong combination of mutations in a young person, the immune system might spot it and clear it out before it ever becomes a problem. But in an older person, those cells can be sort of left unmolested to grow and that can cause a problem. And this really illustrates how these hallmarks are connected together. So it's not just the mutations that cause the cancer. It's the fact that those mutations can occur in an older environment that's changed in all kinds of different ways. And that can encourage, you know, the cancer to become a serious problem. And so these hallmarks, they encompass, you know, basically every aspect of our biology and they're interlinked in various ways but the idea is that by going after specific ones of these hallmarks you can hit not just one age-related disease but many diseases simultaneously again like with the senescent cells that was an excellent ex explanation thank you for that andrew so so let me let me jump on a thought that i just had while you were speaking about that so you know we, we one of the things that i get asked about a lot is what, what are these therapies actually look like, right? Are, are we going to be, is it one pill? Are we going to be taking one pill that's going to cure every, all of this? Is it going to be a senolytic and a, you know, a mitochondria repair therapy and this, that, and the other thing, right? Or is it going to be, you know, in combination with each other, you know, are, are there going to be a lot of different senolytic drugs available? Will they target different things? But, you know, that might be too broad of a question, but more in the most general sense, like what, what, what are these, look, you know, what, what are these therapies going to actually look like in the future? Are we going to be taking pills or is it injections? Are they going to be in combination with each other? What, what do you think the whole kind of therapeutics field will look like once, let's say, aging drugs are proven to work in humans and are available commercially? I mean, I think the honest answer is we're going to have to wait and see because we're going to have to see what works and what works in combination. But it's going to fall into, it's basically going to, I think, cover, you know, a huge amount of what we understand by modern medicine and maybe some more things on top of that. 
So there are certainly going to be pills. I think you know pharma companies are really used to finding a particular what's called a target in in, in medicine, and then designing a drug to go in and hit that target. And so you know the first analytics may well be drugs because that's something that pharmaceutical companies are very used to developing. But then there's also this whole range of other you know ways in which we can intervene in our biology. There's things like antibodies, which might be a good, another good way to get rid of senescent cells. Or there's even the potential to use vaccines to train our immune system to get more effective at clearing those cells up. So you know there's a whole variety of approaches there. Then I think you know looking a little bit further into the future, we're going to see the advent of gene therapies to treat aging because we know that there are certain genetic variants that are much more common in people who make it to older ages. There are some genetic variants that are associated with particular diseases, and you know we might want to go in and alter our DNA to change those to be these more favourable variants in everybody in the population. And I think that's a hugely exciting idea, and it might not be so far off because I think often you know when I talk about gene therapy, that can sound quite sci-fi, the idea of going in and changing our DNA, but actually we've already got the first gene therapies you know that are approved in clinical use right now. Now, this is how there have been a couple approved, in fact, earlier this year. And at the moment, therefore, specific diseases where we know that a single gene goes wrong. So something like there's a disease called sickle cell anemia, where people that their, their blood cells form this sort of sickle shape, they're less able to carry oxygen. And we've now got an approved gene therapy. This is a very serious disease with, with no particularly effective treatments until this gene therapy came along that can go in and fix the genetic problem that causes those blood cells to be that shape and massively improve the quality of life for sufferers. Now that's sort of a, a a very good sort of testing ground for how gene therapy works because this is a really serious disease. There aren't many great treatment options, and because gene therapy is very new, you know we don't want to be handing this out like candy to everybody in the population just yet. But as we cut our teeth on these severe conditions, we can start to you know slowly understand the safety, slowly understand how to do these therapies from a technical point of view, make them cheaper, and so on. And we can think about widening the net. And there are some really great candidates for genes that we could go in and alter, and hopefully you know. With, with fairly minimal side effects give people much much potential for longer life so that's a really cool and exciting idea and then we as we move further into the future things like stem cell therapies are going to become really important as well because a lot of what happens when you age is degeneration of various parts of the body and by introducing stem cells we can repopulate places where those cells are being lost and again that sounds quite futuristic but there are already a lot of clinical trials for things like stem cells for parkinson's stem cells for age-related forms of blindness again these are serious diseases that don't have many treatment options on the table now and as we broaden that net as we understand how the stem cell therapies work we're going to be able to roll these things out much much more widely and i i'm very happy actually to talk about a cure for aging this isn't necessarily because i think it's going to be something that happens soon but if we look around nature we can see there are animals that literally don't age they have a risk of death that doesn't change depending on how long ago they were born they don't become frail as they get older at least until the very very end of life they can stay you know even reproductively active they all aspects of their biology seem to be preserved as they get older and i think that's something that you know whether or not we're going to achieve it in the near term is what we should be aiming for for humans so i'm happy to talk about this idea of a cure for aging the problem is that when i do talk about that you know you sort of get the impression that might be a single pill that you just pop and suddenly you know everyone lives forever but actually i think it's going to be a combination of all these different therapies as we understand more and more about how the therapies work how the aging process is made up of these interlinked hallmarks we're going to come up with cleverer and cleverer ways to intervene and gradually you know push those risks of death and disease further back into the future so i don't think it's going to be one magic pill i think it's going to be a combination of sort of patchwork of things and that's why it's so important that we don't put all our eggs in one basket in a sense we want to make sure that we're researching all of those hallmarks because it'll be tragic you know if we solve three hallmarks but then we get killed by a fourth or a fifth or a sixth one that we just haven't bothered to address right so i think it's really important to imagine you know, well, a cure for aging is going to be a lot of different things what i want to ask really quick is so you know do you see there any you know in, in the case of like personalized medicine like do you see you know potentially 
a senolytic and, you know, metformin and a gene therapy for me and stem cells. And like, you know, I know you're saying that, you know, they obviously all serve different functions, but like, do you see, you know, it varying between me and you the same way that, you know, I might not have to take a statin or, you know, cancer drugs when you might have to, and, you know, it's going to differ between individuals, you know, their health right now. Like, do you see personalized medicine playing a role in, you know, what kind of drugs you take? that will effectively cure your aging or is it, you know, do you think it's going to be kind of like a, you know, one drug will be able to probably fix it for all people or most people? I think this is probably something that's going to vary again, depending on the hallmark you're looking at. And we're, we're at a stage now where one of the other frustrating things about aging biology, we know enough to have these exciting treatments, but we don't know enough. For example, we, we don't know which tissues, so which parts of the body, these senescent cells are most important in. And this is true in mice. This is true in people. We also know uh, from the mice experiments, at least, that different senolytic drugs and different senolytic interventions have very different effects in different tissues. So it might be that one day, you know, you go to your senologist, this is obviously a medical discipline that doesn't yet exist, and they do some kind of blood test and they say, well, you know, your, your senescent cell burden is looking worse in your kidneys, it's not looking so bad in your liver, so we'll give you this particular senolytic intervention that will improve the things, you know, as, as you require. Whereas, you know, someone else might come up with a completely different, they might have the opposite diagnosis for me. So I do think there's definitely some potential for this to be personalized to some extent. At first, it'll probably be, you know, fairly classic things that just kill senescent cells, you know, sort of bludgeon them all around the body but as we get more nuanced in our understanding of where those cells are a problem and how they're a problem i think it probably will vary between individuals because you know we already know that some some families are at greater risk of cancer some families are at greater risk of dementia there's clearly a genetic component to how this stuff works and as we understand more and more about it i'd be really surprised if there isn't at least some degree of personalization absolutely and you know that kind of goes hand in hand with our ability to you know understand our genetics and kind of understand, you know, what we're at risk for and, you know, early, you know, detection and things like that. All, all these things are, you know, it, it's not just the therapeutic side. It's also going to be this diagnostic side that will play a big part, right. And understanding I'm at risk for cancer at 20, let's get me, you know, you know, better, you know, diagnostics and, you know, understanding of if I have cancer at 20 versus waiting until, you know, 40, 50, 60. So, I just wanted to throw all that stuff in there because I do, you know, I, I, I personally believe that longevity is not, you know, just the geroscience, right? I, I think that's probably the biggest part in my mind. I would probably say you probably agree too, but you know, there's, there's all these other industries and, you know, efforts in the biomedical and biodiagnostic, you know, landscapes that are going to play a big part in keeping people alive for a lot longer, right? And healthier. So and, and senologist is that is that a is that a word that you just made up right now or is that <laughs> I, I think it might be a word I made up when I was writing the book but yeah oh, it's, it's not not yet a oh, thing <laughs> right. I like it I like it I like it nice nice all right so let's let's kind of get into some of the policy stuff specifically you know let's talk about funding because that's you know all, you know what one of the biggest things that we advocate for here at A4LI, you know, I mentioned it in the beginning, but, you know, the, 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 the misallocation of funds based on what we die from is, you know, it's, 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 it, it's wrong almost in a way. And it's not anybody's fault. It's no politician's fault. It's no one's fault. It's, it's not any administration or country's fault. You know, people just don't know this is a new field, right? That people like you and me are, you know, we're trying to bang on the doors and get people to realize, but it's it's still a very new field, right? So that's the first thing I kind of want to just throw out there before talking about how misallocated the funds are. So can you kind of give some statistics and discuss specifically like why you see the NIH's budget being so wrong? Like, you know, like and like, what 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 would be an appropriate number for you and 
you know, also, can you kind of touch on what, what's going on in the UK with the longevity space and specifically funding there? Like, you know, is, is this a US specific issue or is this, you know, globally, are there other, you know, countries that are kind of taking the lead on this effort? Yeah, great question. I think it's, it's a very, it's a very hard one because if you think about, if you're a politician and you're thinking about what have my friends or my relatives died of, you know, Biden recently put his name to this cancer moonshot. Of course, friends, relatives, they die of specific diseases. That's what we write on death certificates. And I think this paradigm of imagining aging, which, you know, is a natural process. And a lot of us, it's something that we aspire to. We want to live a sort of long, healthy life and become, you know, wrinkled and gray haired and distinguished. These, you know, these are not necessarily bad things. To imagine that there is some biological aging process that gave rise to that cancer. And that's the place you should intervene. I think it's hugely counterintuitive. And this isn't just to, you know, policymakers, people setting funding amounts. It's to doctors, it's to scientists, as I've already mentioned. This is just a whole new way of thinking about how we do medicine. And so, as you say, absolutely no one's to blame for this, really. That said, there is a you know a huge disparity in the funding compared to the potential for this field. And if we look at the NIH specifically, I think its overall budget is somewhere in the ballpark of $40 billion a year. But of that, about $2.5 billion goes to the National Institute on Aging. But unfortunately, it's even worse than that because there's this sort of running joke in biogerontology that NIA doesn't stand for National Institute on Aging. It stands for National Institute on Alzheimer's Disease. And that's because about two-thirds of the funding goes to the Division of Neuroscience, which is looking essentially into Alzheimer's dementia and a few other forms of dementia. Now, this is hugely important work because obviously dementia is a, you know, a hugely important disease. But then if you drill down, there are a couple of other divisions in the NIA. There's some stuff looking at sort of the social aspects of getting older and some other parts of the biology. But the so-called aging biology division gets, I think, about $350 million a year. That's a bit over $1 per American. And you already mentioned, you know, the causes of death, if you look at things like the cancer, the heart disease, the dementia, all of these things that aging causes, actually it's about 85% of deaths in the US are caused by aging. That 70% number is the global number. So that includes, you know, less wealthy countries as well. In some rich countries, over 90% of deaths are caused by aging, essentially. Right. And yet it's receiving, you know, this tiny, tiny fraction of the research funding. And then if you look at the U.S. healthcare spending, then healthcare costs about four trillion. It's more than four trillion, I think, for the for the entire country. And so you're spending something like a ten thousandth as much on trying to prevent the diseases of aging, which are responsible for a huge fraction of that healthcare spending as you are on the spending itself. So that's even from an economic standpoint, even if you know, you're know you being a completely cold, hard numbers guy, then this doesn't make any sense. And obviously when you think about the human cost of these diseases, it's absolutely wild. And you know, if there's something that's got an 85, 90% chance of being the end of my life, I want to spend more than a dollar a year trying to sort it out. So there's huge, huge potential there for you know, ramping up the funding and massively changing the research landscape. So what do you think? What do you think a good number is? $10 a person? 100? <laughs> I mean, I, I'd be very happy to invest $10. I think, honestly, the limit for the number should be based on how fast can we scale this thing up? Because I'd happily give $100 a year for researching something that's almost certain to be the end of my life. Like, I, I don't really know where the limit is. Um, certainly far, far higher than we are at the moment. So I think the real question is, to what extent, you know, there are limits to how fast you can increase this budget. We can't triple it overnight because where would the scientists come from? People have got to you know, move between disciplines. People have got to learn the tools of the trade in this new field. And so as a result, I think the real question is, what are the limits to scaling it up? And that's where I'd start the discussion for how high should we be aiming. Absolutely. Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of efforts to kind of bring scientists from other dif- disciplines into this aging biology field that I see crop up now. And, you know, I feel like the infrastructure is kind of being set for you know that but yeah like you said you know i was i was speaking with a with an office the other day and sometimes if 
you know, if the Congress gives money to a certain agency and they don't have actually, they can't spend the money, they'll say, don't give me this money. We don't want it. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, or we can't take it. Right. There's nothing to spend money on. And sometimes they'll force it on them anyways. And sometimes they won't. But, you know, I, I think if, you know, I mean, I, 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 if it was me, a thousand, maybe a ten thousand. Yeah, like it's, it's, it's so high that it's, I don't know. it's just completely out of proportion to where right. we are now. And so, you know, like, that's, that's not really the question. But like, if every person gave ten thousand dollars, or put ten thousand, or wanted to put ten thousand dollars of their money, or whatever it is, towards this, or of taxpayer, whatever we want to say, government money. I don't know. I don't know if the NIA would be able to, you know, it, it, it's something that I think this field needs to, you know, like you said, it, it needs to be scalable and it needs to be kind of, you know, it needs to follow the trajectory of what's going on. You know, the private and public need to kind of be working together. Right. And yeah, yeah it, 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 that, that, that's really an interesting way to put this, though. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely going to phrase the NIA division of aging biology's budget like that. One one dollar per American. I like that. It's, it's, it, it's a lot more visual, you know, it's a lot more visual. I, I do like that. So yeah, definitely. And I think just to, to sort of put a bit of an, more of an optimistic spin on, you know, how fast can we scale it up? The good news is that the tools of biology are relatively universal. Like if you're working in a cancer research lab and, you know, we know that the National Institute for Cancer gets about two to three times as much money as the whole National Institute for Aging, mm. then those cancer researchers working in that institute, they already know all about how to use pipette, how to do complex microscopy, how to do DNA sequencing. All of the tools of modern science are largely transferable between those two domains. Obviously, they're going to have to learn, you know, some new sort of terminology, some, some new paradigms and how they approach their research. But these aren't like these aren't going to require decades and decades of retraining. These are some very smart scientists. And what will happen is, I think this is certainly the case in you know the scientists I've observed, they follow the money. Like if there is a research grant that's available, that means you need to turn your skills to researching aging biology. I think that firstly, they'll follow that money. And secondly, the case is so compelling. I think a lot of scientists would be motivated to work on it if they realize, you know, a lot of those scientists who are working on cancer are doing so because they had a relative who died of cancer or because they've got a sort of broader humanitarian imperative. So there's a huge potential there to bring scientists in from other fields, you know, not just from cancer research, but all across biology, across right. some of the physical sciences as well. Like, you know, that's obviously what happened to me. So there's huge potential to scale this stuff up. It's not as though we're super limited, but Absolutely. I think that's the way we should be thinking about it. Computer science, AI, all that, you know, working with big data, all, all that stuff, right? Absolutely, absolutely. You're definitely not wrong about that. Yeah, money talks and what's what's the rest of that saying? I forget, but yeah, money talks. We'll just leave it at that. I think we made a compelling case here for why the uh, NIA Division of Aging Biology needs more money. So thank you for that. Made my job a little easier there. I wanted to touch on the second part of that question, though, that I, that I asked, which is, you know, is this a universal issue or, or is there any country that's really taking the lead on this that you see, you know, how, what's it like in the UK? Is it similar to the US? And, you know, what, what, you know, what can we kind of make from the landscape of, you know, how governments are putting money towards this longevity and biology of aging effort? Yeah, I think there isn't really, you know, a shining light to point to anywhere around the world. And in fact, it's quite challenging. You know, the, the one one of the reasons I like talking about the US, firstly, is one of the largest, if not the largest researcher in the world, you know, huge, huge amounts of government funding, huge economy to sort of power that research machine. But also because it's, as far as I'm aware, the only or certainly one of very few countries that has a National Institute for Aging, that has a government department or government body specifically devoted to funding aging biology research. In the UK, we've got nothing that's that's even you know, sort of slightly similar to that. And that means that it's actually very, very hard to work out how much the UK spends on aging biology. I think this is a broader problem, you know, across countries across the world. You, you were sort of saying 
earlier, this, this sort of cost-benefit analysis we should be doing. We should be, to some extent, looking at what causes the most death in the world, what causes the most suffering, and where could we have the most bang for our research buck. And the thing that makes this really, really hard is that no governments have a great sort of audit. And it's, it's, it's very dry, it's very boring, it's a sort of dull policy thing. But having an audit of where that research money goes. Because if you look at something like the National Cancer Institute, it's a great thing to say, oh, you know, got this headline number, this is how much the US spends on cancer research. But actually, some of the money that the National Cancer Institute spends goes on basic science, understanding the cell biology. Now, this is super important because if we don't understand the cell biology, we can't understand how that cell biology then goes on to influence cancer. We've got sort of unknown unknowns. We don't realize cells do certain things, so we don't know to investigate them from a disease perspective. But at the same time, we don't really know where all of that money is going. And that means that it's very, very hard for governments to try and you know, nudge scientists in the direction of doing the most important research. And scientists often, they're very, very clever. You know, they're smart people. That's how they got that job. And so they're very able to write their research grant in such a way as to fit a particular agenda. That isn't to say that all money in science is being wasted. I, of course, I think it's hugely, hugely important. But you've got to be very, very careful trying to work out how that money is being spent, how to how to incentivize scientists to put their research effort where the biggest bang for the buck will be, rather than where the most interesting problems are. Because I'm as guilty of this as anybody. If there's a fascinating problem, you'll just follow that problem because it's just you know something that really gets your brain buzzing in the right particular way. So that's the challenge. And so I've asked government bodies in the UK, how much are we spending on aging biology? They don't really know. I've asked charities like the Wellcome Trust, and again, they don't really know. The figures that I've got for UK science funding have all been for specific diseases. And they're often produced by campaigning organisations rather than by government bodies. Because, for example, there was a great report that was produced, and it's a, quite a number of years ago now. I think it's almost a decade out of date, this number. But it was produced by an Alzheimer's charity trying to make the case that dementia was being underfunded compared to the scale of its impact. And this is a you know a very valid case to make. It's receiving far less money than something like cancer or something like heart disease. But that meant that they therefore had to go through and look at the research funding for those various different conditions. You know, so if essentially some academics commissioned by a charity is where I got my research funding numbers from. And that's just wild to me. You know, the government's doling out these huge, huge amounts of money, but they're not checking where it's going. And that isn't to say it's being wasted, but it makes it very, very hard to audit to understand how much money is going toward the stuff that's most important. Yeah. Yeah. That's one of the big, I'll just say that's one of the big pushbacks for more funding, right? In the Republican controlled Congress right now, you know, that's one of the big things that they're kind of worried about is, you know, where's the money at the NIH and NIA and all that, you know, maybe, maybe not specifically NIA by name, but the NIH, where's all that money actually going to what research and things like that. And, you know, you could get into some rabbit holes there that I don't, I definitely don't want to get into. So, but it is a valid concern, right? And 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 also, it's not even you know to say that the money is being mismanaged in any way. You need to have an understanding of you know what is actually being done in order to you know figure out what is happening and 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 just have a better understanding of the medical field and you know what people are applying for and you know and and then from that you can incentivize people to do the you know highest leverage science and you know it, it, it it's. It, it, it's shocking to me that also we, you know, there's so much. The government's so big, you know, and there's at least in the U.S. it's so big, and there's you know, there is very little oversight on what's being actually spent. So an audit may I might sound a little boring though. So I don't know if we can get people excited. Yeah, you're, you're going to come up with a slightly sexier name for it. <laughs> I think I think what's really important as well is just to emphasize the importance of that basic science because another thing that this audit let's park that name for the moment. But another thing this audit could do is like to to cut 
to set aside some money for that basic science because it's so so important if we're going to discover these hallmarks of aging you know we've heard they all relate to particular parts of the cell and we need to know what those parts of the cells are we need to know what the molecules are doing inside we need to develop the new measurement techniques you know the new kinds of microscope these things might not have any obvious direct application but it'll be so sad if in 30 years time we need a new kind of microscope that simply doesn't exist because we've put all of our money in this sort of laser focused R&D on specific problems that we can solve in the here and now so I think that's another benefit of it is it allows us to have that conversation and allows us to you know specifically ring fence some money just for scientists trying stuff out because historically you know a huge amount of innovation has come from scientists just having random ideas and seeing where they lead right well leading leading to that kind of kind of thought you know you, you, you touched on biden's effort to with arpa h it's just you know got started up in the past year or so and i kind of want to get your thoughts on it from a from a you know because really i think the arpa model allows scientists more more than and you know the when you're applying for a government grant right you have to kind of fit the narrative that they're pushing you know the biology of aging you know or, or any longevity science is not really doesn't really fit the mold of what's getting money, you know, usually in the U.S. government's grant giving system. Um, and and so my point is, you know, RPH is where experimental science is kind of done historically, you know, at least for, in, in terms of DARPA, right? That's that's kind of you know, been the case. So what do you think about RPH? Like, you know, and, and more specifically, like, how, how do you think we can convince the Biden campaign or the people that Biden has put in the at campaign administration? Let me take that part out. The, the Biden administration or, you know, the people that he's put in charge of RPH to make this, you know, longevity focused instead of, you know, strictly cancer focused or, you know, how, how can we kind of marry the two, you know, his his vision with what, you know, the longevity community wants? What, how do you see that all kind of playing out? I mean, I think the first thing to say is one of the really cool things about U.S. research generally is that you are willing to take these big moonshots. Moon the cancer moonshot is obviously one example. The literal moonshot is obviously another great example where, you know, back, back in the 1960s. But even Operation Warp Speed during COVID, the government just, you know, basically opened up the coffers and said, look, there's this huge amount of money, get this thing done as fast as possible. And that's a really you know, amazing thing that's not seen in many research systems around the world. So I think the first thing to say is this moonshot model, I would love to see a moonshot for aging. In terms of the cancer moonshot specifically, I really think we've just got this this sort of you know communications job that we both know and are both you know tr trying to do is to say, look, this cancer, we're intervening at the wrong time with so so many diseases, and cancer by and large is one of them. The single biggest risk factor for cancer isn't smoking, isn't lack of exercise, isn't eating badly. It's simply being old. Like most people who are diagnosed with cancer are done. You know, it happens in their sixties, happens in their seventies, it happens in their eighties. Cancer gets exponentially more likely as, as the years pass through your life. And what that means is that by understanding the changes in our biology that happen as we get older, we can fundamentally prevent, we can defer a lot of those cancers from happening, which is so, so much better than trying to tackle them when they arise. Because firstly, you know, chemotherapy, surgery, radiotherapy, these are grueling, grueling treatments. That isn't to say they haven't saved huge numbers of lives and they're better than the alternative, but they're very, very hard for patients. They're very, very hard for the patient's families. And also, you know, we're intervening very, very late, which means you're, you're battering someone with these chemo drugs at a point where they're already old and frail potentially they've got loads of other comorbidities they're called these you know, other diseases that they've got at the same time and so they've probably got a bit of heart disease they've got a bit of cognitive decline that chemotherapy is only going to accelerate that decline whereas if we can intervene earlier we can stop people from getting cancer in the first place that's just so so much more powerful than intervening at the very last minute as medicine does at the moment so i think in terms of yeah con convincing people who are working on what's currently sort of quote unquote normal medical research it's the idea that 
preventative medicine, I think we, we're starting to understand more and more is, is so, so important. But just the huge benefits of intervening earlier in a body that's less aged, in a body that's less frail, and then preventing those diseases from happening. I think, you know, it'll be a perfectly valid way to spend money on a moonshot for cancer to try and prevent the cancer from happening in the first place. Agreed. Absolutely agreed. And and, and that's, that's something I, you know, I, I try to make everybody understand that, you know, a, a drug that targets aging is a drug for cancer is a, and it's also a drug for heart disease and it's a drug for you know, diabetes and all these diseases, because, you know, the ultimate goal is to prevent any of these from, from, from happening, right. For us, but by targeting the biology of aging. So, yeah. And, and also hear that everybody, you know, cancer does not, you know, you can eat and drink and smoke all you want and cancer, you know, aging is still, no, I'm just joking. I'm just joking. It's a complete (laughs) joke. Um, well, but, but, but you, you saying that does, you know, the reason I, I wanted to say that is because that does kind of bring up another question that that I, I hear all the time. You know, how much can you do right now? And 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 the fact of the matter is, from what I see, you know, there's a lot of what we can do right now to, for our own longevity is, you know, don't eat too much, don't drink too much, don't smoke, you know, exercise, things like that. And it's 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 a little bit depressing because I you know people want a more exciting answer than that, but it's like there are some people who are experimenting with maybe rapamycin or you know metformin, but you know there's nothing that you know you can really point to and say hey do this other than you know eat well sleep well don't drink that much don't smoke you know exercise all that kind of stuff. So how do you you know when people ask you that what do you usually say like what, what can I do right now Andrew what what do you usually say? Well, there's a few different things. The first is that I think understanding the aging biology actually makes these things a lot more compelling. So firstly, you know, not smoking doesn't sound particularly sexy. But when you realize that smoking essentially accelerates the aging process and therefore by quitting, you're decelerating not just, you know, the effect on your lungs. They bear the brunt of the damage from smoking, of course, because that's where the smoke and you know, all these other gases are just going. But it also reduces your risk of cancer outside of the lung. It reduces your risk of heart disease. It reduces your risk of a whole range of unconnected things, even dementia. The same is true of exercise. You know, you can feel as you're going for a run, your heart's pumping in your chest, your lungs are going. You can you can feel a benefit to your cardiovascular system, to your muscles. But again, it reduces the risk of some kinds of cancer, reduces the risk of dementia. It's not a perfect analog, but it's very, very close to literally slowing down the aging process. And that's really inspired me to sort of stick to this more basic health advice. The other thing that I think is really cool, you know, you talked about rapamycin, metformin. We've already talked about senolytics as well. Some of these breakthroughs aren't decades into the future. They are, you know, going to be with us in the next few years. And particularly if we can get some research money to actually do the trials and work out whether these things work. Mm-hmm. And what that means is if you're living healthy, if you're, you know, trying to stick to your diet, trying to stick to your exercise schedule, it's very hard to be perfect with these things. But if you can, you know, improve your healthy longevity that little bit, that means you might live long enough to be lucky enough to experience some of these first longevity breakthroughs. And if you can experience, you know, take your rapamycin or metformin or senolytics, if those turn out to work, then what you can do then is live a little bit longer still and benefit from the next generation, the more advanced anti-aging therapies that are coming down the line. So there's just this huge, huge incentive to stick to the, you know, quote unquote, boring health advice, because as it slows down your aging, it makes you eligible for more and more of these exciting future developments. And the final thing that I'd say, the sort of most unconventional bit of health advice, and I know that I'm uh, preaching to the converse with you, Dylan, but the, the, the fact is the single most important piece of health advice, if you're sticking to you know, basically a healthy diet, getting a bit of exercise, not smoking, getting enough sleep, doing all the sort of standard stuff, is to raise the profile of aging biology. 
because this has such a huge potential to increase how long all of us live, how healthily most important all of us live, not just for you, but for your friends, your family, for everyone you care about, for people you don't know, you know, all around the US, all around the world. The single most important thing we can do is accelerate the development of these treatments so they arrive in time for the, you know, the less healthy and the older of us. And I, I really think that's the single biggest thing we can do to move the needle. Because the fact is, you know, all this health advice, you cannot exercise your way reliably to 100. Even if you follow every single tip in my book and every book, you know, the, every good book on longevity you've ever read, then you are not going to guarantee that you make it into those sort of rarefied 90 or 100 years old in good health. This is, you know, there's still a huge element of luck, a bit of an element of genetics. And so the single biggest thing, as I say, is to just make sure that this aging biology research happens and we can try and open up those sort of healthy older years to as many people as possible. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. You, you just gave me some goosebumps so you can't see me here, but I, I, I agree with you, you know, and, and, you know, the, the reason why I jokingly said eat and drink up and whatever and smoke up is because obviously I was joking, but it, you know, aging really is compared to all of them, the number, you know, it, 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 it outweighs those other ones by, by substantial margin. It's absolutely it really remarkable. I'm going to get this number slightly wrong probably because it's a, a while since I've read it, but I think Having high blood pressure roughly doubles your risk of a heart attack, but being 80 rather than 40 multiplies it by, it's more than a factor of 10. It might even be as much as a factor of 50. I can't remember the number off the top of my head. It's just, it's remarkable yeah. how much of a difference being older makes versus, you know, all the risk factors that we know. So yeah, it's very much about how old you are and, and trying to do something about it. You know, the, the, I think this is, I, I got this from David Sinclair, but the analogy I use is, is, is like a CD, right? If you, if you run a CD through a record player over a hundred years, there are going to be scratches from wear and tear. Smoking puts, you know, is like taking it out and put an extra line on it mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, exercising and sleeping well is like taking, you know, the disc out for a second and, you know, scratching, you know, removing a scratch. Right. And so, you know, you're not going to be able to exercise and, you know, you know, sleep well enough over, you know, to, to remove all the scratches if it's going for too, you know, too long. Right. But that's where a longevity drug comes in and, you know, you can get rid of a lot of those scratches kind of at once instead of you know removing one at a time in the way that yeah and i think the other inspiring thing about this health advice is all of it is cumulative so if you're listening to this and you're you know 60 70 years old it's never too late to start i saw this amazing study uh, while i was researching the book i think it was some 90 something year olds who were given a two month long program of resistance exercise so you know, not not pumping iron but sort of effectively lifting weights trying to put some strain on their muscles and they found that their strength massively increased over that two-month period and their walking speed improved. Mm. And you just look at a result like that and think, you know, if someone in their 90s can manage that, then, you know, there's, there's basically no one listening to this. You can't, you know, get start integrating a 10-minute walk into your day. Start taking those first steps. And actually, those first steps are often the most valuable. And so, you know, if you can reduce the sort of cumulative accumulation of those scratches on the CD to, to you know, carry on your, with your analogy, it's never too late to start doing it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, it, you know, living a really healthy and good lifestyle and, you know, I... I I've seen this. My grandfather is 96 and, you know, I, I think part of it is genetics, but he, you know, he, he has, and always, you know, always has, you know, prioritized living kind of that healthy lifestyle. And so, you know, it, over COVID, it kind of slowed down a little bit. Right. And, you know, we encouraged him to kind of get back on his, you know, daily walks and, you know, all the things that he was doing before. And, you know, you could see that, you know, just by walking, you know, daily, right. He, he was, you know, just more, energetic and alert and in other places. Right. And so, so yeah, you know, the exercise really does have a lot of benefits and, you know, I, I gotta go, I got I guess I gotta go pump some iron after this to get mine in for the day. So th that was, that was a great kind of discussion. Do you have any other thoughts on, on this kind of, uh, on what we were just talking about before? Cause I, I do have one more topic I want to get to. Let's crack on. All right, cool. 
So the last thing I kind of want to touch on is, you know, kind of kind of demographics, right? And so, you know, there's, you know, a few things at play in, in, in world demographics, you know, Western countries, Eastern countries everywhere, really, except for really the developing world. But, you know, people are getting older, right? The population is going from, I think, in the U.S., from 2020 to 2050, it's going from, I think, 13 to 25% of the population is going from, is going to be old, over 65. So, you know, we're going to see a 12% increase over the next 30 years. You know, I think in, in Russia and in England, and I'm just thinking of the other ones I've looked at, France, it's all going to be even more profound. China too, it's going to be even more profound than the US just because of, you know, uh, historical things that have led to that. But, you know, the, the case I always make is that countries are kind of going to have no choice but to turn to longevity medicine to, you know, lessen the burdens of this aging population, right? So, you know, that's one aspect of it. But also, you know, in terms of an economics, you know, from the economic standpoint, people are having less children, right? You know, the, the you know, replacement, you know, I, I think pretty much every country now is below replacement level that I, that I can think of you know, so, so, so there are going to be less people to work or less people who are able to work and, you know, contribute to the economy. Right. And then more people who are going to, you know, require care. So can you kind of, you know, does it make sense to you? I'm, 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 I would expect that it does, but would it make sense to you that longevity medicine would be kind of the ultimate, you know, antidote for, you know, this, you know, silver tsunami we're seeing? Like, do, do you agree with that statement? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's remarkable sort of the extent to which it's not discussed in policy circles. I listened to a podcast a while ago that was about this sort of demographic crisis in the UK. And you know, for the half hour, they spent a lot of time discussing you know birth rates in different countries, a lot of time trying to work out how to incentivize women particularly to have more children, how to sort of spread the burden of parental care to try and make it a little bit easier, that kind of stuff. Not a minute was spent discussing trying to improve people's health at the end of life. And that's obviously, you know, the later part of life, which is obviously, you know, even if only speculatively, it's a huge potential part of this. And, you know, the reason being, if you think about something like retirement costs, the reason people retire often, you know, historically it was set up because people were unable to work anymore because they were physically incapable, you know, their health had deteriorated to that point. And then we, when we look at healthcare expenses, a huge, huge fraction of that $4 trillion a year in the US is going on the chronic diseases of aging, you know, the diabetes, the cancer, the dementia. These things don't kill you instantly. It's not like you just, you know, go to sleep one night and then don't wake up the next morning. Often they, you suffer for years, you suffer for decades, you need social care, you need drugs. And then there's the indirect cost of these diseases as well, because, you know, you might give up work because you're no longer capable of, of getting involved. You might withdraw from society. You're no longer contributing, spending money economically. You might have relatives and friends that do the same in order to look after you. So there's this huge, huge sort of spiraling cost associated with the ill health of old age. But if we could help keep people healthier for longer, there's an enormous dividend to be made there because you know, people would be able to stay in the workforce a bit longer. People would be able to carry on doing their hobbies, seeing their grandkids, doing all of these things that are obviously great for their quality of life, but also great for the, for the health of the economy. And in fact, if you, you sort of run through the numbers, there was a great paper that came out by Andrew Scott, who's a, an economist from the UK and a couple of other authors. And they calculated the benefit to the US, like the, the amount that people effectively would be willing to pay for a delay of aging by just a single year. So if we could defer those diseases, you know, increase lifespan just by 12 months, would be $38 trillion. And if you think about that in the context of GDP, of anything else, these are just, you know, eye-watchingly enormous amounts of money that pe people really want to live healthier for longer. And this, this benefit effectively scales linearly. So if you extend that out to 10 extra years of healthy life in their model, I think they got 367 
again, trillion, not billion, trillion dollars. So people, you know, the longer and healthier that they can live, the more benefit they can get from life, the more they can contribute to the economy, the less they cost the healthcare system and so on. So I really think it's it's kind of remarkable how little attention is paid to this. Another example, actually, is if I, I think we need to do some serious modeling of this stuff. And again, this is another sort of boring, dry sounding suggestion. But if you look at the, the United Nations is a body that does population projections around the world. There's also the Institute for Healthcare Metrics and Evaluation who are doing all kinds of stuff about that. If you look at their population projections, uh, they, they often have different variations of these population projections. And they have like, so the UN, for example, has a high variant, a medium variant, and a low variant. And you ask what the difference is between those population projections. It's all birth rate. Like it's literally how many kids w- women are having. It's how many kids, how, how fast they're able to sort of roll out women's education or you know access to family planning in the developing world are huge, huge factors in this. And then if you delve down into the code and find out what's happening to life expectancy underneath all of these different scenarios, it's really sort of bizarrely short-sighted. It's, it's unimaginative because you see that countries effectively, they imagine that life expectancy haven't been ticking up by three months a year, every single year since the middle of the 1800s. So we've had almost two centuries of three months per year of life expectancy growth in the best performing country in the world. These bodies nonetheless assume that life expectancy is effectively going to plateau. And in many cases, they assume life expectancy is going to plateau below the levels that countries have already achieved in parts of the rich world. So for example, the US life expectancy, when I looked into this, was projected to plateau at a level below where a country like Japan has already reached today. And this is you know, projecting all the way out to the year 2100. There may be problems with the US healthcare system, or whatever those things might be. There are all kinds of you know, issues in societies around the world. But are they really saying that in like 80 years time, the US won't have improved to the point where countries have already made it today? It's incredible. And if you then look at countries in the developing world, uh, the projection for Nigeria, which is obviously quite a poor country, never even made it to US levels today. And so you're just thinking, you know, what is going to happen in Nigerian society that in the next sort of 50, 100 years, they're not going to be able to reach levels that we already know are humanly possible. So it's absolutely remarkable that these models aren't taking this stuff into account. And that means that, you know, your projections for pensions, your projections for all kinds of things are just going to be completely wrong if they're relying on these numbers. You know, even if even if current standards of medical care are rolled out around the world, we're going to see more than these increases. And if there's even the most modest of success in longevity science, we're going to, you know, we could potentially see them completely blown out of the water. And actually there's this, there's a, a classic paper called Broken Limits to Life Expectancy that looks back over historical projections of where life expectancy was going to plateau. And they found that these various projections, the average time from a limit being proposed to human life expectancy to it being exceeded in one country in the world was five years. So demographers really seem to have this natural pessimism about you know how much further achievement we can have in medicine and healthcare and sanitation and all these various things. But actually, you know, the most reliable indicator has been three months every year increased life expectancy. If you just draw that straight line, that has been, you know, the simplest and best projection. And as I say, if you know we start getting improvements in longevity science, we could see that starting to take off even higher. So it's incredible to me how little attention is paid to this economically, demographically. And we really need, you know, apart from anything else, just to start thinking about it. Because even if the funding doesn't increase, and I very much hope it will, but even then we've got stuff that, you know, breakthroughs that are on the horizon. And that means it's incredible to me that we aren't thinking harder about this stuff. I mean, it's, so 80 years ago, the life expectancy in the US was what, like 55? Mm-hmm. That's, that's the most ridiculous. That is crazy. 
That is nuts. It is, it is really incredible. That is so life expectancy has, has basically doubled since the middle of the 1800s. Life expectancy back then was sort of 30 or 40 years old. And now in most countries in the rich world, it's something like 80. I think Japan is currently leading the pack on 84 and a half years old or something like that. So we've, we've really changed. You know, we've effectively doubled what it means to be human. I think it's one of our greatest achievements as a species. But, and there's no reason to expect that that progress won't continue. Right, exactly. Like even if... Even if it wasn't, I mean, I, you know, I, I think everything is happening in, you know, more of an exponential pattern than a linear pattern, right? Even if we had the same linear increase from, you know, 80 years ago to now, which was about 30 years we got, right? 25 years. It doesn't make any sense to me. That's crazy. That's a really crazy. So there, the UN projects that by 2100, the US won't be above 84.5. Exactly. And it's just like, on, on what possible medical social basis could you make that projection? It just doesn't make any sense at all. Wow. All right. Well, yeah, I think I know. What... <laughs> it's just hard to know where to start with it, isn't it? Yeah, I think I think I know. I think I, I think I, I think I like want to redo those UN numbers and take into account all of that, right? But what what I was also thinking about is, you know, you mentioned. Um, you know, obviously birth rates are low, right? And, 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 you know, the governments are trying to get people to have more babies, which is a little weird if you ask me, but I, I kind of understand it, even though I believe they should be focusing on, you know, keeping people alive who are live now, you know, alive for longer and in a healthier state. But another part about long, you know, of longevity, that's, you know, kind of not talked about as much or, you know, talked about in you know some regards, but I, I think it's quite interesting because it, it does kind of, you know, help on that birth rate issue, right? Is is the effort to, you know, help with female fertility, right? And and I, I've seen efforts with uh, male fertility too, but obviously that's, you know, they're, they're, they, they face different issues on that. But I, I just wanted to throw that in there. I think that's, a, you know, kind of an interesting mission there in of itself. I mean, obviously it's longevity related, right? But it's specific part of longevity that affects you know it, it it affects obviously the birth rate you know topic but it also i think affects a little bit like you know social dynamics and you know, how people kind of live their lives and you know i'm, I'm you know i'm i'm 25 now you know by i have friends who are starting to get married here right and, and so it's like you know this is the kind of time when people think about it and you know there's a time for it right so it's just just interesting because if you know that window is extended you know how do people kind of react to it and how does you know society kind of built but yeah, yeah. And I think like, so I, I'm 37 and I am very much in crunch time. You know, a lot of my friends are, you know, they're, they're either, they've got their partner and they're sort of, you know, deciding, do we want kids or not? We've got to make the decision in the next few right. years. Is my career an inflection point? Should I be, you know, working hard? And is that going to then mean that I make a decision that affects me for the rest of my life? Right. And so I think actually, you know, treating reproductive aging, it's a feminist issue because we men, you know, as you say, the issues are quite different for us. Men can continue reproducing certainly into their 50s, maybe their 60s, 70s. I think the oldest recorded father on record might have even been in his 90s, which is a bit of a strange thing in itself. But, you know, nonetheless, we have a very different set of constraints. And that's part of the reason, you know, why, why men and women have such different outcomes in the workplace at the moment. Right. So I think that's a hugely important thing. And actually, generally, you know, women have often been neglected from medical research. So another thing that this, this sort of downstream consequence of this, women undergo menopause often in their 40s or 50s. Mm -hmm. And that dramatically changes their biology. And it can result in thinner bones. It can result in less muscle density. And these things, again, go on to have consequences for their aging. So that's another area in which we just need to understand those biological differences between men and women, between, you know, menopausal women and non-menopausal women, and try and work out how to keep women as healthy as possible, you know, in optimal functioning condition for longer 
whether right. or not they're able to have children that's a you know a, almost a separate question but carrying on that sort of premenopausal level of function postmenopausally is another huge huge health issue and i think one that's not getting enough attention you know in aging biology or just in general absolutely absolutely yeah yeah i'm with you that's it's something you know there, there was a there's a few companies out there that have raised a good amount of money that i've been aware of and, and so you know i'm it's definitely something that people, you know, it's, it's something that as it should be, you know, people care about, but you know, it's not, it's not something that I, or I feel like many people in the industry kind of, kind of touch on a lot. So I'm, I'm glad we got to talk about that a little here. Yeah. You know, so, so I, I think we're kind of coming up on time here. So the last kind of, you know, thing I wanted to, you know, the, the last topic or the last, you know, discussion point I wanted to bring up is, you know, I like to kind of get a sense of, you know, why my guests do what they do, right? Like, like, you know, what really inspired you to make this your passion? I know you talked about, you know, you wanted to you, you switch from physics to biology to like actually verify if this was real, right? That was kind of your interest. But like, you know, for me, it was, you know, really COVID is what drove me to, you know, get involved in the biology of aging, right? And, and this, you know, political effort that I'm undertaking, you know, it, it was kind of watching my grandfather have to deal with, you know, aging in a very, you know, up in front way and kind of watching him watch his friends and, you know, people he cared about have to deal with COVID and pass away from it and things like that. And so that's what kind of, you know, in a way almost traumatized me and, and, and was like, you know, I, I decided I needed to do something. Right. And so, you know, I, and, and I've talked to people and it's not, everybody's like that, you know, not everybody has like a kind of, um, you know, thing that kind of, you know, they can like think back to, but you know, that some people are just scientists like through and through, and this is the field that they, you know, got into. But what is it for you? Like, do you have something that that really drives you in this field? And, you know, if, if so, what is it? I think COVID's a fantastic example, actually. It's something that I think is just worth mentioning quickly separately, which is that when we talk about pandemic policy, there's obviously this discussion of trying to develop the next vaccine for the next pandemic in 100 days and get mRNA technology such that we can roll it out as fast as possible. One of the best things we could do for the next pandemic is have medicines that slow down the aging process. Because yeah. why was it that those older people were so much more susceptible for COVID? You know, at the end of the day, why did we have to shut society down? It was because older people were dying or potentially would have died had we not done that in huge, huge numbers. And if we could all just be 10 years younger in our immune systems when the next pandemic comes along, that's a, a disease agnostic. It doesn't matter what sort of disease it is. We're going to be much more prepared for it. So I think that's the first thing just to just sort of mention as an aside about COVID. In terms of my origin story, actually, and perhaps, you know, my, my background as a physicist is, is the reason this was possible. I changed career essentially because of a graph. And that graph is the graph of your risk of death, depending on how long ago you were born. And I think it's just worth, you know, all of us know that older people are more likely to die. That's something that we've been brought up with, you know, as children, we, we understand that our grandparents are more frail and we might even see them die in our childhood. But what's remarkable is just how much that change, you know, what, what that change actually looks like in magnitude. So the safest age to be, and I think this is an incredible statistic, modern 10-year-olds are the safest humans in the history of our species, which is to say they've got a less than one in 10,000 chance of not making their 11th birthday. But unfortunately, after that, things, you know, unfortunately go downhill from there. So I'm, as I said, 37. My odds of death this year are somewhere around one in a thousand. And I quite like those odds. Like if that were to continue for the rest of my life, I'd live into my thousand and thirties on average. But clearly that isn't what happens. And that just really illustrates, you know, how low your risk of death is as a young adult. It's very, very hard to die. Essentially, you know, cancer, heart disease, these things do happen. It's tragic, particularly tragic when it happens in younger people, but it's very, very rare. 
But then as you carry on through life, if I'm lucky enough to make it into my 90s, but unfortunate enough that we haven't had any developments in medical technology in the intervening time, my odds of death any given year will be one in six. So that's life and death at the roll of a dice. And you look at those odds and, you know, as a human, it is a bit terrifying. But as a scientist, you look at it and you think, wow, you know, what is it that's causing this synchronized increase and this exponential increase in the risk of death and the, the causes of that death, the cancer, the heart disease, the strokes, the dementia, all of these diseases rapidly, rapidly increasing after your sort of seventh or eighth decade. It's, you know, remarkable that perhaps we can understand this process and do something about it. And it might not be a coincidence that a lot of this was happening at the same time as you know, my parents, they're getting into their late middle age now. I've just had a, my, my dad's mum finally passed away. So that was my last grandparent. And I sort of watched that process of deterioration. So there is a bit of a human element to it too. But ultimately, I think what really drove me was these statistics. Because as you know, we've already actually mentioned this, as you run through the numbers, aging is responsible for more than two thirds of deaths globally, probably more than 80%, more than 90% in a lot of rich countries. And when you think about you know, what those deaths involve, we've already said they, 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 there are years or even decades of suffering. The treatments are often very grueling. These things are hard for you. They're hard for your friends, your family, watching you go through these diseases and the treatments for them. And I think it's probably inarguable that aging is the largest cause of suffering in the world as well because it's you know most people are going to be killed by it and that death is preceded by you know decades of disease of decrepitude of frailty of you know all these various different things i just thought this is our biggest humanitarian challenge and that's ultimately what drove me you know from being a physicist to bi being a biologist to then trying to raise the profile of this field and really you know do something about what i think is our, our biggest biggest cause of suffering and therefore because we have the science to do something about it our biggest humanitarian opportunity to make a difference yeah, those, the odds, that's, that's, yeah, it's pretty powerful. That's a pretty powerful one. So the last thing I kind of want to just ask you before we hop off here and send you on your, on your way and we go on our way here, what gives you hope for the future? You know, like what gets you out of bed? You know, it, it, I, I have a feeling it has something to do with the biology of age in the field, if I had to guess, but maybe not. You know, what, what would you say is, you know, what, what like gives you hope for the future of, you know, humanity let's say i think in terms of the aging biology it's the fact that we've got we've got these 10 hallmarks now have you know how many you choose to say and we've got multiple different treatment ideas for all of them. So if this was just something where we had one drug that delayed aging a bit in some animal, or you know we had you know maybe a couple of ideas for a couple of the hallmarks that might have been demonstrated, then you know it would be hard to get super excited. This would be a, an important thing to carry on doing research into, sure. But the fact that we've got multiple different, very different ideas for all of the hallmarks of aging, and the fact that these hallmarks seem to be connected together is something that's very exciting too. So the, the fact that you know you can kill the senescent cells in a mouse and affect what seems to be the whole of its aging. And we know that that's because that senescent cell accumulation is, is linked to a whole bunch of other hallmarks. That means it will be wildly unlucky for none of this to work. Because say we've got five ideas per hallmark, we've got 50 different treatment ideas. And it might be that many of them affect most, perhaps even all of the aging process. Yeah. Mm. How, how much bad luck would we need for literally none of those things to pan out? And so that's what really gets me excited about this field and the future. It's just that, you know, we have to get super unlucky for none of this to work and the potential if it does work is absolutely massive so yeah i think that's just makes it a very exciting time to be alive yeah 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 absolutely there are a lot of shots on target right you got to think at least one if not more are going to make it in right a lot of really skilled shooters you know to make the sports analogy complete you know doing the science every day you included and so i'm grateful for you for people like you and for this you know effort for existing because, uh, you know, without it, I'd have nothing to advocate for. So. Well, I'm grateful uh, for you guys for doing the advocacy. Cause I think that you know, it's very easy as a scientist to stay sheltered in your lab all day, but actually 
you know, a huge amount of what happens is dictated by how the funding is done, by how the policy works, by making sure it's possible to get the drugs to market, all the really important stuff you're advocating for. So thank you. Absolutely. Awesome. All right. I think I think we're we're good to go, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. Cheers. Live long and prosper. I want to thank Andrew Steele for making time to join us today. And those of you listening at home, I hope you found this conversation as enlightening and informative as I did. If you have anyone you would like to see make an appearance on our podcast, you can send your suggestions to us at info at a4li.org. HBAN will return in a couple of weeks, but until then, let's live long and prosper.